Hey there, welcome to ATL and 29 at Peachtree Hoops podcast, where we look at the NBA from the starting point of Atlanta. My name is Kevin Chenard. I'm here with Glenn Willis of Peachtree Hoops. Uh, we're recording on a Wednesday night with the Hawks having played Monday and picking up again Friday against Brooklyn. And I guess the first question is, Glenn, why did you think Notre Dame should be in the college football playoff? You know, I don't pay enough attention to have an uh, actual opinion on that. I I think, I, and, and the piece of Hugh Slack, I actually predicted the order one through four. But if you had asked me, like, who was the next most deserving team, I would I could not have had, I could not have contributed to that conversation. Okay. I see the sweatshirt you're wearing. Uh, is that a little, uh, is that on your mind today? No, actually, no, it was just a sweatshirt. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, maybe start with the downer, which is the Solomon Hill news. Yeah, uh, get that out how of does way. how does that change? I know today, I think somebody asked McMillan about you know TLC, and there are some similarities there, but you know against the LeBrons and, and that sort of caliber player, it's nice to have a larger defender uh, who's comfortable defending out on the perimeter uh is that sort of the biggest loss or am i missing something yeah and i i just i mean i think the obvious is just the depth the additional impact of the depth with hunter out um not sure when cam will be back and um and hopefully that's not something that's gonna gonna linger but don the child so, so just a, you know one more uh wing that's out but you know just I think someone that you can throw in and kind of throw a lot at defensively while TS TLC is um, a more mobile defender and he's a, um, he, I think he's bigger than a lot of fans maybe realize has some nice size and length. He's Um, longer. He's not that big, but he's, he's, he's pretty spidery. He's, he's got a big wingspan. Yeah. I I think he's kind of sneaky big and using the word big to mean, you know, dimensionally whatever, you know, length you know, things like yeah. that. So, yeah. uh, I mean, he's not a guy who's, you know, you, you'll look at some other guys are like, okay, Kent Bazemore was really a shooting guard playing small forward, for example. Um, Timote is a legitimate forward, you know, kind of defending out there and can handle some assignments. But, but I mean, Solo is a guy I think you can throw a lot at, you know, if it's a, hey, go give us some important minutes against Julius Randle in a playoff setting or, um, you know, something along those lines, I, you know, uh, Timothy is younger and doesn't have the experience that Solo had. And so I just, I feel like the biggest thing they're missing, especially since all of their other, um, kind of defense first guys, uh, on the team are younger. It's just, you can throw a lot at Solo, even if he doesn't have the mobility, ideally like to have at the point of attack. Um, you know, he's, I've always called him an organizer, uh, a really good team defender uh, in the right place at the right time, but then even kind of one-on-one matchups, you know, you can throw a lot at a lot at him that requires him to be on point um, technique-wise, and he he can bring that um, even though he's still going to have limitations as a defender um, uh, otherwise. So just I, 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 with my coaching background, you kind of love it. you can just kind of throw a guy on the court and know he's going to tackle the assignment with like a lot of attention to detail and a lot of technique discipline. And I think that's hard to replicate for the Hawks right now. Yeah. And it, 
it's really their their bigger defenders that they're missing. It's hard to miss Hunter Reddish and, and Solo all at once. That's for sure. That's a big ball. And then with Pagodovich out, he's always more helpful when he's guarding bigger guys and guys that function closer to the yeah. paint too. So it's, I mean, you don't put him in that same category of guys that you think about defense when they come up, but he's still, when you can steer him towards those kinds of defensive responsibilities or defensive opportunities, he's more helpful. So everybody you kind of stuck into that area of guarding up to bigger wings, including Bogdanovich that they're missing all those guys. right now. Yeah. Um, Maybe, maybe, maybe we'll get a return soon on Onyeka Onkongwu is with College Park. And and honestly, Cam Reddish might be back pretty soon. He was at practice today. He was shooting. Uh, I saw him flex his left hand kind of one time, kind of just feeling it out. But, I mean, I, he, he didn't look to be in any great distress. Uh, I, I'm sure they'll be careful, but this is as long a break as you're going to get in the season. Uh a nice time to kind of regroup. And so uh, if there's any way he can go, I suspect he probably would. Yeah. And the, it might be jumping a little ahead here, but the matchup with Brooklyn on Friday night is. <laughs> no, that's unique. not ahead. That's, that's there. Yeah. Well, I know, but I just mean, we might've, you and I might've talked about it a little later in this episode, but. Oh, gotcha. You know, in, in terms of defenders that are missing, you know, you know, what are you going to, what are you going to do? You know, it's good. Uh, JC is going to have to, I think, fit, match up with KD. If K, if KD plays KD, uh, I don't remember if it's tonight's game, but the, the last game that they played, he, he didn't play. Um, but, you know, Harden, KD, um, I don't, we have a reason to think right now KD's going to play, but um, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be challenging. Yeah. And, and we'll see if a Congo plays college park plays tomorrow night. Uh, in Long Island so that'll be interesting to see if uh, if he's actually that close that he gets some minutes I suspect that it would be a small dose uh, at the beginning at at the very least where he'd just play a little bit instead of just full bore go although he's probably itching (laughs) he's probably itching to go Um, I'm sure he's ready I mean any you've been there but any clips I've seen of him kind of, you know, whether it's getting shots up or whatever, he just looks like a guy who's just ready. Ready. He just, this, that's just the feel you get from even watching like 30 to 45 seconds of him is that he's putting in all the work and just waiting on that shoulder to heal, you know, and, and get stronger and, and for not to be such a risk. And I agree. I think he, I mean, I don't think they send him to College Park unless he's going to play, but I think it's probably like eight minutes or so in yeah. his first game, something like that, probably. Yeah, six months probably feels like forever when you're 21 years old. For sure. Actually, he's not 21, but he will be in three days. Close enough. Close enough. All right, so uh, we've had some games since the last time we've potted. Uh, So if we backtrack, we've got losses to Philadelphia and Mm -hmm. Charlotte and a win against Minnesota. Uh, you know, rotating cast of characters because of the injuries. But uh, right. what are what are some takeaways? I mean, it's it's hard to think of two opponents who are sort of more extreme, different than 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 Philadelphia and Charlotte. They just kind of seem like opposites. But uh, Hawks didn't win either one of those two. 
No, and it was kind of funny because as we were watching the second quarter, the Sixers offense, you know, just completely stalled out. And and I think I shared on Twitter like, oh, this is a familiar experience for Hawks fans. I, I wasn't intending to exclude Sixers fans there, which is trying not to be you know cruel in, in that sense of kind of drawing attention back to the that playoff series last year. Um, but then the Hawks had, you know, I think a nine-point fourth quarter where they just could not score uh, at all. And, and the, the kind of funny thing about that was Embiid got into foul trouble in the third quarter um, and had to exit ahead of when he normally does in the first and third quarter. Right. And I think he ended up playing the entire fourth quarter, which is – that's pretty pretty impressive for a guy his size for it to be the fourth quarter – um, and the, and he just made uh, enough good plays, and he's such an impactful defender. Just sometimes, just sitting in front of the rim and all the space he occupies, and uh, the athlete that he is, and things like that. It's funny because I went back and looked at what he did statistically in the fourth quarter, and on the stat sheet, it was he was like two for five with like two uh, for, uh, two assists or something like that. Um, but just the way he was passing out of double teams, the way he was seeing the double teams coming and getting the ball rotating. Uh, just got other Sixers players involved in offense and kind of brought some rhythm to their team. And so he, you know, I thought he was just really good uh, in that fourth quarter and the Hawks just couldn't uh, kind of make any, any shots. Um, and, you know, there's, they, they were at a point where they're still kind of shuffling, you know, what does the rotation look like? If he's playing, who's closing and things like that. So that, you know, that's part of the disruption that kind of comes with the injury situation they're in right now. Um, but if you go back and kind of look across their res- results since November 14th when they started that winning streak, um, until they hit Charlotte, basically if they, if they score about 105 to 107 points, they're winning. Um, that Knicks game, which you and I talked about, um, you know, the starts, a lot of starters playing the whole third quarter of the previous night in Memphis, that was the game that they ended up in the mid-90s. The Sixers game, they ended up, I think, right in the mid-90s. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a rare outcome for them offensively right now, even across a longer stretch, and even including since they started to kind of deal with these injuries. Um, they're pretty consistently kind of getting into uh, north of 110 and sometimes, you know, closer to uh, 120 uh, or, or so. They're still clicking on offense, but I, you know, whether they took some things for granted against um, Philly that night and, and just assumed that the uh, kind of the shot making would kind of come back to them, I don't know. Um, but it, if you look back, it, it was kind of an aberration to to a point of an offensive night because they haven't had many nights where they're not putting up 110 or more points. And but that was one of them. And I thought uh, Doc knows how to coach defense. There's no doubt about that. Doc, you know, he, I know that what fans of teams that doc coaches can kind of get frustrated with what happens offensively or what doesn't happen offensively but he can coach defense and they were on point and um i thought that was the the difference in that game what'd you see well yeah when you when you mentioned that the offense has really been clicking for a while now i thought i mean not that it's sort of the offense but as bad as the fourth quarter was the third quarter right before it when they had John Collins at the five and, and and Trey running point late in the third. That's as good as the John at the five line has have looked. I thought this whole season, I mean, he's right. just kind of having his way with, with Andre Drummond uh, that he, you know, Trey was putting pick and roll passes on the dot. And 
you know, I think a part of it is that honestly, that, you know, Gallinari has looked like himself for the first time this season for the past week, 10, 14 days, however long as at some point the, the, the switch clicked and now he's starting to look like himself finally. Yeah. And then, um, what I think accidentally kind of threw a wrench into the Hawks kind of keeping the offensive flow going was that indeed after sitting with foul trouble in the third, played the whole fourth quarter and it's harder to play John at the five when Embiid's on the court. And you're sure. fine with that with Drummond because they're not going to play through him offensively, not even close the way they right. do through Embiid. Yep. And so the Hawks had to go back to kind of a more traditional lineup, if you will. And they had a hard time getting offensive juice um, with that configuration. So I thought that was a, a major factor. Yeah, now you've got me. I mean, I think they did play Collins at the five for a lot of that quarter, didn't they? Just out of necessity. Uh, Capella, you know, lately Capella, his finishing has been uh, questionable. To put it mildly. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't quite understand it. Like, I mean, he shoots free throws with his right hand but he's finishing in the paint an awful lot with his left. And that started last year. And it just doesn't seem very reliable. It just seems like, yeah, here's a shot attempt. (laughs) It never quite feels like it's been aimed. Yeah. Let me see here. So here for the fourth quarter. Yeah. They played. uh, No Capella. They were on and off. Capella played like six minutes and then another four minutes. So you, yeah, yeah, okay. That's that's pretty much a full quarter there. But yeah, yeah, that that's my recollection is that they had a hard time getting back to John at the five, right? Um, with Embiid staying on the floor that whole time. Um, and so, Collins played the whole almost the whole third, so he, he right. Was, they were which was which was understandable that they wanted yeah. to maximize the time with Drummond on the court, let Trey and John kind of go against that. And I, I'm not a Drummondator. I actually think Drummond in some ways is more impactful on Trey. Uh, then and B just because he can get a little higher on the floor, right? But it's a different thing when John when it's John you have to recover with because he's yeah. so fast and has so much vertical um, ability and, and things like that. So I, I think it made a ton of sense for Nate to kind of you know put his foot on the gas in that third quarter and let Trey and uh, JC attack that opportunity. But then when Embiid came back, they couldn't get back to it, and then you know that seemed to be the primary reason they couldn't get the offensive. Uh, clicking again what about that charlotte game yeah that was just i mean i think i still think people don't know how good charlotte is on offense and a lot of people will think who charlotte Char- oh just the team okay go ahead yeah and i th- and i think a lot of people will think well yeah lamello and lamello obviously didn't play in this game and charlotte's going through a rough time with guys in, in the protocol and things like that but the, the stuff they run on offense and how um, and I, th- I think there was a joke going around maybe in a slack somewhere with how the, the Charlotte benefited from Plumlee not playing in that game, which I actually Rozier. think, uh, yeah, I mean, Plumlee for sure. Rozier is probably, uh, you know, a less serious kind of point to make, I, I think, but, um, but I mean, Rozier, especially when someone like Millamel's out will dominate the basketball and things like that. And, and but when they get to Bridges and Washington um, and really play five out, it's not just like, oh, they're playing five out. They are really um, 
you know, moving the basketball, know how to kind of drive and replace, drive and fill, you know, drive and kick, uh, all those sorts of things. And to their credit, even though they didn't really have much of a point guard presence, uh, apart from Hawks killer Ish Smith, um, jumped in the starting lineup. And then Cody Martin, who's not really a point guard, was awesome in my view in that game. But uh, it, again, it looked like a team, the Hornets looked like a team that the Hawks just weren't taking seriously and we're expecting some natural separation to occur in the game that never happened, which, which, you know, happens at every level, including at the NBA level. Sometimes I just think the Hawks luck, the Hornets are undermanned and they're, we're going to get separation. It's just a matter of time, but the Hornets just kept making shots. And then the thing that I thought, you know, we talked about in the Sixers game, I think the thing that really swung the game was being able to play the whole fourth quarter and the Hawks not been getting back to a lineup that was, really produce an offense in the third. Um, and against the Hornets, I thought the Hawks' initial game plan defensively was geared around expecting the Hornets to play through Gordon Hayward primarily, which they did. That's where they went early in the game and for a, a good part of the first quarter, if not some into the second quarter. Um, but in the second half, they basically, even though they were moving the ball and playing five out, they were really good looking for opportunities to get Miles Bridges attacking in space. And he's having an awesome season. Um, and, they, and the Hawks never brought help, never brought even a stunt, a stunting defender or a digging defender or kind of any different forms of help you might see. And Charlotte kept getting him basically right at the nail, um, kind of operating, and he uh, killed <laughs> the Hawks down the stretch in that game. They just couldn't kind of keep him from scoring. He, if you look back, I think he had like – 31 on 18 shots, uh, 18 shooting possessions or so, a super efficient night. Um, and uh, the Hawks in that game scored plenty of points to win the game. That was in one of their uh, times. I think I think that final was 123 to 120, if I'm remembering correctly. And 120 points is something the Hawks are um, just kind of able to have a shot at right now with how uh, at the high level they're playing at offensively. But they just didn't get stops it was interesting to me that without much ball handling in the game the Hawks weren't able to apply a lot of ball pressure to kind of impact the Hornets there um and such but yeah that's where where Hawks fans I'm sure had to feel like that's a game they should have won um and didn't even though the Hawks are missing guys too it's it's more of guys in really uh kind of initiator roles that were missing on the Hornet side and uh yeah you have to walk away from that feeling like that's a game we should have won that we didn't and when you just look at the scoreboard, it tells the story that the defense is where uh, the effectiveness didn't happen. And I don't know, like where where you should be able to have some advantage over Charlotte is, you know, going back to Capella, like the last time he played Charlotte, he made 10 out of 11 shots. Like, and again, a lot of that was against Plumlee, but, you know the, the the Hornets started a traditional center in this game too, and and in those mutual minutes, you know Capella was just a non-factor, and it's it's disappointing. I don't know. I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, I I think my, where my thought was is that if and when Charlotte does go to the smaller, faster lineup, that. Capella and JC should be able to kind of eat on the offensive glass. And and the Hawks did well on the offensive glass in the yeah, game. I mean, they, yeah. But it wasn't enough to ever make James Rigo feel like he had to go back to 
Nick Rick, Nick Richards or you know or some other more traditional kind of kind of lineup there. Um, and basically, Charlotte felt comfortable with their Bridges and Washington lineups at the four and five, um, and which makes it hard, frankly. Uh, I don't want it to sound like we're bashing Clint. Clint brings a ton of value to the team, but in this game, Borrego felt comfortable sticking with Bridges and Washington down the stretch to close the game. And with those two guys and what they can do with the four and the five, it's hard to keep Clint on the floor unless he's really dominating on the offensive glass and kind of creating extra points right. uh, that way. But, you know, it, it did play for a lot of minutes. Bridges played 40 minutes and Washington played 38. Right. And, and, and for my view, clearly Borrego was trying to keep Clint off the floor because even when, maybe when you're watching and it looks like Clint's not having much of an impact, he still is their chief organizer. He's the guy who makes all the calls. He's the guy who is calling when they're running their red scheme, whether they're switching the ball screen or not, even though he's not up in that screen. And so, you know, I think coaches know, like, even if, if Clint's not, you know, finishing at the rim the way that the Hawks would like, and even if he's not, you know, you know, blocking shots uh, in the paint, you know, um, frequently and things like that, that he still has an impact on their defense. And, you know, all you have to do in a way is kind of look at the number of minutes Clint played in that game and then look at the number of points that Charlotte put up. And I thought, I mean, I don't, I don't often kind of go to a statement like this very often, but I just thought the Hornets coaching staff won that game and the Hawks coaching staff, you know, we could say they lost that game or we could just say they couldn't find the solutions that they needed to find to force Charlotte away from what they really want to do down the stretch, which was play small and give Bridges space to work offensively. And the Hawks never took that away from them. Couldn't find one thing to take that away from them at all. I mean, Clint, Clint did pay, play a lot too. He played 31 minutes. Right. But, uh, it, it certainly seemed like a game where, Nate McMillan was just like, yeah, just take this one and flush it. Like he wasn't pointing out any trends that he didn't like. He he was just like, it happens, and 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 you know, and it does. When 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 the questions got topical, he you know he just kind of skirted them and was just like, yeah, well, didn't <laughs> this just wasn't our night? Like he, you know, eighty two games. I you're gonna have some where the coaches are like, yeah, just take this one and punt it. And I think that was Nate's approach to that one was. Uh, we've got a game tomorrow, and this one, it, you know, just just get rid of it. Yeah, so to give you an idea, the Hornets scored 62 points in the second half in that game. Mm-hmm. Clint played 14, a little more than 14 minutes in that half, and he was, he was plus eight. Yeah. So when they got Capella off the court, and, and I understand that they were making Hawks feel like they had to take – Capella off the court to keep up offensively. But, you know, that tells you what was going on when Capella came off is that they lost some structure, they lost some uh, connectedness, they lost some of those things that Clint does bring them that sometimes doesn't ever show up on on a stat sheet, you know. Um, So, you know. If only the Hawks had a defensive center that they could bring off the bench. Well done. (laughs) It's right around the corner, we hope. He looked good today. He was he was playing like one on one with Clint Capella and just just outright stuffed the post move. And I was like, whoa! <laughs> and, and and Clint's bigger than Gorgie, like you know, by a few inches. So it, yeah, it, it, Clint looked surprised a little bit, like holy shit. 
Yeah, he kind of grunted uh, like, I can't believe you blocked that, but <laughs> easy. He, and and just sneaky fast. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, most young centers he's slow, kinda, but he's quick. You know what I mean? Like yeah. his A to B running is just like glacial, but then like you're trying to get a move on him in the post and he just gets to a spot before you do. And then you just don't have the spot space that you thought you did. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's true. I, I don't know what's going on there. Yeah, um, well, he played, he played against Minnesota. I don't know if that was a, Hey, you know, here's your old stomping <laughs> grounds. Uh, it worked. You, you, you get some minutes against cat because you've probably uh, done more of this than any human alive. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's funny, I, you know, as you know, I think uh, I lived in Minnesota for 11 years. I've only been away from there now I'm for sorry. a couple of years. So Minnesota is a wonderful place to live. It's one of my favorite places I've ever lived. Um, but you do have to have the appetite for cold weather, no doubt about that, um, which which is which suits me fine. Um, but it was kind of funny to text with some folks there that were watching the game and um and, and such and to to a person they all said oh yeah cat's bringing this out and and gorgie there's no doubt about that um you know Gorg, tibbs paid gorgie like a starter essentially right at, at one point along the way and gorgie never never really got a chance to kind of establish himself as a long-term starter and i mean all of these guys like they find reasons that if they even have to, to manufacture a chip on their shoulder, right. <laughs> you know, the NBA schedules a grind and finding little things to kind of keep yourself motivated and stuff like that. But well, I think he made three threes uh, in that game, but the whole team was making their threes, but, but that was one that kind of stood out at you. And then just some kind of uh, effectiveness. It was interesting to what I, two things I heard from my Minnesota people uh, during and after the game, one was, uh, everybody is defending Cat with smaller players, and and JC was primarily the guy matching up with him early in the game in the first quarter, um, and so that was something that was kind of reinforced. That you they're even seeing small like small forwards or combo forward types mm-hmm. being assigned to defend Cat. That's not just Cat. I mean, like if you're if you're watching Lakers games, uh, teams are throwing guards at LeBron now. Uh, instead of you know big guys and, and that's it, it is a trend in the league but the second thing I heard from all my Minnesota people was and it wasn't just a three-point um, shooting but wow that team really knows how to function on offense that team is in the observation because these people watch everybody who goes through Minnesota these guys these, these people mm-hmm. that I'm talking to see all the teams in the league but it was and it's not just Minnesota people I've heard this from but I hear a lot wow that team on offense is just doing stuff that other teams aren't doing the ball movement the precision the pace um the way that everybody is kind of synced and connected uh, on that end what trey can do to kind of really uh put all of that stuff into motion to, you know teams um or, or people that cover teams and then see the hawks come through are coming back with like holy cow that is not what you see from other teams in the league very consistently. It's funny, I was looking it up before we jumped on. <laughs> mm-hmm. the, the Hawks are still second offensive rating, and the Jazz are at like a whole, like, I think like three points ahead of them, which is just crazy. Right. You know, um, but but I hear that all the time, the Hawks and the Jazz, when it comes to offense, like the... The Jazz are so weird in that they just have an unbelievable percentage of their shots that are threes. Like, 
Right. And I don't know, you know, I guess there's the question of how sustainable that is in the postseason and when teams gear up for it. But for the regular season, they just, you know, they're playing math ball very, very well. They are, but but I think what people are reacting to is the precision of the play. For sure. Right. And it's helpful to have two skilled guards because you see it. Right. You know, they've got Mitchell and Conley and and Kevin Herter is an incredible luxury in that Minnesota game because Minnesota is doing everything they can to get the ball out of Trey's hands. But, you know, you have an ideal situation when, you know, the guy you'd least like to guard in TLC is shooting lights out. And then you've got a two guard who can pass like a point guard. You, you just got bad options at that point when you stick to kind of trying to trap and blitz Trey and get the ball out of his hands. You know, as long as the Hawks are, are in a rhythm with their passing, they, they, have the, uh, they have the personnel to do it. They do. And then if, if Trey is outright trapped or something close to that, you know, even if Kevin doesn't have a pass, his ability to dribble down into the mid range and, and create his own shot. And he's one of the most efficient scorers in that space now. Um, and is really confident in that space too. That it's, you know, they have guys in JC, especially in JC and Herder right now that can get into that space that's created when Trey is uh, attacked by more than one defender and just right. take advantage of that space. And that's powerful. And, and, you know, we don't have to talk about it now, but eventually I think there's going to be a conversation around does Herder stay in the starting lineup on everybody's back? And if so, what does that look like? You know, and like, I'm not ready to have that conversation. I, it's exa- I'm already exhausted of it. And I just teed it up <laughs> and deferred it. Right. But, but it's, it's critical because there is some pairing and, and we, and we saw this in the postseason last season, the things that Herder did to the Sixers in that series. And he had a, you know, good games and bad games, but he had big games when the Hawks really needed big games from him. And a lot of that was getting into that space created by all the attention that Trey was drawing and, and right. making use of it. And so that's, that's phenomenal, but it, but I do, I am now consistently hearing um, jazz Hawks, you know, uh, the, and the Warriors are right there in third and offensive rating. And that's, we all know a ton of that is stuff. <laughs> um you know who who yeah i know the, the guy who the guy who came down eating something like 17 three point makes to pass uh is it ray allen who holds the record yeah. um and they're actually doing a countdown i'm like i don't think he's gonna make 17 tonight guys but um <laughs> but <laughs> and i i enjoy stuff but it's the broadcast that drive me crazy there but yeah i, I i'm now consistently hearing jazz hawks like what they do on offense is is completely stands out to the entire rest of the league um and that's something you know and it's it's sustained now this isn't like you know a five or six game stretch they're on that level and i think they're gonna stay on that level knock on wood if the key players stay healthy um i think you know i think as we knew kind of coming into the season the trick is going to be to find that consistency on defense and there's no doubt in my mind that a congu will help but it really comes down to Clint. And, you know, I think the... I would have I loved the Congo in the Charlotte game. For sure. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, and they need that. that um, yeah. the, the fact that a Congo for a young guy can organize. I mean, I, I, I want listeners to understand, like, when Clint kind of sets the baseline on the organizing, communicating, a Congo at this young age can jump in and continue that kind of process of all that stuff that Clint has set. I don't think it's going to be you know too far down the road that a Congo is going to be ready to deliver on that end of the court, you know, all of the team things 
that Clint gives them as a starter and, and give 30, 32 minutes a game, 33 minutes a game. Um, that's probably a goal goal for next season. But for number one, for Congo to be able to jump in and provide that continuity. Um, and secondly, you know, in the Charlotte game, when they're running bridges and Washington types at the four and the five, right. another team is doing that too. He is just gives them a different dimension uh, against a, a matchup like that. That is, I think is phenomenal and it's going to be fun. So I'm excited to, to kind of see him get back. I, I do, I do think Gorgie could help more. Uh, I, I just think that his chemistry with Trey on offense is a zero right now. Um, and that's tough for him. Um, you know, because these guys, uh, you know, Clint had last year, John's had, well, this is year four with Trey, right? Yeah. Um, and on and on. So it's, and, and it's tough. And Gorgie, Gorgie just in his natural state plays slower than those guys, which is not really what Trey wants to see. And again, Kangu has every bit as much speed <laughs> as Clint and John, John have. Just Gorgie, that's just not who he is. So, um, you know. So, well, to backtrack, you know, and this is rehashing a topic from earlier, but like, if you look at that Minnesota game, if if that's Hunter and Bogdanovich starting, I think they're worse off. Like, I think some of that stuff works against that starting five, and it just doesn't work when when you've got Herder in there. Like, he's just a different kind of player than those two in terms of playmaking and being aware of how the offense runs and knowing what all the options are. I. I think Hunter and Bogdanovich both get a little bit of tunnel vision at time and they, they play a little too pre-planned. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, you know, maybe it's just, it's going to take Bogdanovich getting back because last season it was pretty um, clunky the whole way until about March. Right. And that's when Bogdanovich, and you know, was that, time and in, in, in kind of what Nate wanted them to do with like attack early in the shot clock then pull back and, and use the whole shot clock was it more a lot more floppy you know that they ran specifically for Bogdanovich to get them really more more opportunities to dribble down towards the nail and into the paint than, than a three-point shot the way they run mm-hmm. floppy and, and stuff so um you know I, I think Bogdanovich is still a critical um oh, to what they, what they do but Herder is younger and I think Herder is ascending to offer them a more versatile set of things than Bogdanovich gives them. You know, I think to your point, Herder attacks uh, with instincts much more quickly. And it's kind of funny to say he's much more decisive because he's always been indecisive at the rim and kind of, you know, around contact and physical stuff like that. But when it comes to, you know, attacking on the weak side, he is, he's just, pounces right on it at this point right. and just like you mentioned a moment ago with Bogdanovich uh, it's oh do I have a shot you know should I kind of create a step back for myself because he's a, 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 in in his natural state he's a shooter you know and if we even go back to the brand that Herder brought out of Maryland and what he showed at the combine even it was the passing and the is the versatility of an offensive player and that's still something that's growing uh, and being developed for him, um, but I think the more the more we see Trey and Herder played in this period where they have that opportunity, and then it kind of reminds us of what it looked like in the playoffs last year. It just seems like a natural pairing that needs to be cultivated and developed. I don't know what that means for what the rest of the starting lineup looks like. And like I said, there's time to figure that out later. I'm not I'm not ready for the conversation because <laughs> I just think it's going to be unpleasant. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. 
Um, is there is there anything we're missing? Oh, are we gonna do a pacer straight? A pacer straight <laughs> for the Hawks? Yeah. That, yeah. It, 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 I mean, the Hawks have some second round picks coming up. And they have all their first round picks too. Okay, but we're talking about the Pacers, though. <laughs> your least favorite team. This is a. This, this, you're the wrong person for you to have this conversation with, Kevin. Well, that. But honestly, that's that's the thing, though, is everybody's like just offering junk for you know every the entire NBA was oh well we'll get this player for second round pick and free agent to be and thirty seven year old. Yeah. 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 I had to go back and add to my. Uh, Twitter comments. Hey guys, no one announced the fire cell. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is you know. I, I think I saw something about oh we're gonna get Sabonis for Jeremy Grant and something and 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 not that Jeremy Grant isn't a nice player, but Sabonis. It's hard to find centers that can function on both ends of the court. It just is, you know. And Sabonis gives you that, and I think Turner is overvalued. Is there a but, team though for Sabonis? Like. If you look around the league and say, oh, he would be a good fit here. Like, where's that place, though? I mean, I don't. Well, I mean, I, for me, mm-hmm. I've always said, which is, is, as you'll hear, is kind of relevant now. I've always said, after Horford left Boston, if Brad Stevens ever gets his hands on Simonis, it's over. Because that elbow. That's funny. That was the one I was going to say. But now, you know, with the coaching change, I, I don't really know what to make of any of that. And, like, yeah. with the way Tatum is kind of fighting, trying to fight through, like, what the team needs from him and what he feels like he does best, I don't know if Sabonis helps that at all or not. Um, so, in terms of, you know, like, could Dallas kind of, you know, switch things up, you know, and kind of give, um, you know, Luca a little something differently? I, I'm not I the biggest. That would work. I think he would mess. I don't know. He can attack on the weak side from the elbow. No, and there's no doubt in my mind about that. In a way where Kristaps tends to want to kind of stay behind the three point line, and, and not right. that he's not useful there, but I just think when I, I just think Kristaps is a little bit of a passer, and he shies away from contact. You know, for a guy you know as big as he is, he you know you want a guy in the backside who's just going to kind of press into the defensive gaps when Luca is on the strong side you know dealing with multiple defenders Sabonis is in my mind incredible to kind of just take advantage of that on the weak side ball retreating to kind of where he has it so I mean I'm curious about that I haven't sat down to look at like who could be sent out and how the salaries match you know and, and things like that but you know n- nothing really to your point like nothing really jumps out at me it's like a super obvious uh type of fit um at all but it's just but you know a reminder for Hawks fans Clint Capella can't be traded this year um a reminder to people who aren't Hawks fans a conduit was way better than you realize he is it's not <laughs> right um and uh and he's a, uh, at a great at a great price point you know for three more years including this one um and such so you know i i honestly don't think there's a great fit i think malcolm brogdon would be an incredible fit i think trey herder brogdon with what brogdon offers defensively and his shot making and his ability to function as a point guard if you need him to uh you know he, he does he's a little herder ish he's just yeah a lot say, stronger a little bit a little bit of a duplicate yeah a little duplicate but i think that's good when herder goes to the bench you kind of get that continuity you know yeah. going and no exactly like that. you need but, that sort of 
player from but your bench. The Brogdon can't be traded this year either. So that would be an offseason things. Um, okay. And also, you know, I think we're all reminded that the word is that Brogdon and Nate had serious issues in Indy last year. Oh. Or okay. before, I shouldn't say last year, but Nick's before that Nate. One. Right. So, but I mean, how real is that? How permanent is that? I, I don't know. But that's not anything that could even happen this year. And then you're getting into would like a Justin Holiday type help, you know, you know, do you give up assets for a 32 year old rotational wing? I, I like Holiday. He's a helpful guy. But, um, you know, I don't really see anything there, but I thought people would, listeners might be disappointed if, uh, if we didn't kind of, kind of touch on it is, you know. Do you want to cover Turner, the whole Lloyd Pierce, Nate McMillan, and now the paces are blowing it up angle? Is that, is that an angle? <laughs> is it, I don't know. It's an do, angle you want, you do you want to, to talk about it? asking try hard questions? I, I'll listen to you talk about it. No, that's okay. I mean, it's important. No, I mean, I think it's important it is. It, it, because you know, if 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 every reflection of every NBA player is just this player is great, which is true. If you're one of the 400 best basketball players on earth, you're really damn good. And you know, any discussion of how you play basketball should include he's really good. But the fun of basketball is, you know, comparing the relative strengths within that group of 400. And mixing and matching and and talking about when things are going well and talking about when things aren't going well and so when things aren't going well, uh, that those are topics to address and 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 those come with hard questions. So hard no questions doubt. are important. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt about that. Just because a player, Trey or anyone else, uh, has a, um, a less than warm response to a question, doesn't mean that the question was inappropriate or unfair or anything like that nothing i've heard in recent uh post games jumps out at all as being something that shouldn't have been asked or was asked the wrong way or anything like that at all so i'll, I'll go on the record with that but if 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 listeners are really interested in um kind of learning about how uh reporters that cover a team for kind of a long time you know kind of get into these kind of relationships sometimes um I feel bad because I, I forget the author's name. Um, but ha- have you read Boomtown, the the book that was written about? <laughs> have you read that? No, but if if it involves media relations, I, I might because that's always seemed like a uh, uh, a little a, a little everything was a little too close there, and yeah. yeah. So it's so always seemed it, like a weird media market. It, it is, and then putting Russ Westbrook in that market for a extended time. <laughs> but yeah, you, you have yeah. to, in my yeah. mind, you whatever order you have to read the book, which is it's an awesome book. I mean, I read it in like a day and a half because I, you know, I, I mean, I read a ton, but um, and then you have to listen to the low post episode where Zach had the author on, and I feel terrible, I can't remember his name, but it's easy to find on wherever you look for books. Just boom down. And to hear the interview that Zach has where the author talks about what he tells stories from what it was like to try to get even an, a sentence of a response out of Russell Westbrook. And this is someone who dealt with him for years. Right. Um, but the, the angle of the interview for those moments that I found most interesting were, how, you know, what was it like to deal with Russ? What did it take for you to ever get to get him to say something to you kind of on the record to actually answer the question that you asked? And the funny thing that we saw on Twitter as sort of a, a follow-up to the Trey stuff was 
hashtag next question and trey as we all know grew up in oklahoma and that and i don't know if listeners know this but russ will next question the heck out of the media for eons and eons and eons uh if he doesn't like your question so trey didn't come up with that all on all on his own um but yeah i mean mean, trey watch this like you know this is this is this is from the age of like when trey was 10 to the age when trey was 20 so that, that, that's that's you know that's Trey's formative years that he was watching this. So absolutely, but Boomtown is an awesome, awesome read. It's not just about the team; it's also about kind of the history of Oklahoma City and the state of Oklahoma and how that shows up in the way the franchise functions in the community right. and in the state. But then, if you listen to the the Low Post episode where you hear the specific story shared around what it took to get Russ to speak on the record to make statements at all and it's just absolutely fascinating you, i came away with like how the heck did you write a book when it was that hard to get russ to say one <laughs> to give you 30 seconds of on the record kind of commentary and stuff so that's obviously not where this is but it's it, it, that's a pretty normal state of things you know it, what happened you know there was in my mind just not really unusual so and that's again yeah all right so, yeah, we get uh, Nets on Friday, and I'm forgetting who they have on Sunday. <laughs> I'm going to see if I can look it up here. Rocket, Rockets. Oh, oh, Rockets. Actually, yeah, yeah. that's the game tonight. That's right, because tonight's game was the two next opponents. Yeah, and uh, they went, I think they've gone, they went from losing 15 in a row to now winning seven in a row. Does that sound right? They beat the Nets? Y- yes. Sorry, I didn't, I didn't check the scoreboard here right before we podcasted. Yeah, and I think that cake and that's the one where Katie sat out and and someone else um important on the Brooklyn side sat out, but I can't remember who the other uh, oh Aldridge. Aldridge, Aldridge sat probably, out. And, yeah, Aldridge probably yeah, sat Aldridge out. and Katie. So um so yeah, Brooklyn and then and Houston, which you know before the last week and a half or so or whatever, we thought would be kind of a almost a whiplash, you know, experience of going from Brooklyn to Houston. Yeah. But now Houston's won seven in a row and uh, <laughs> doing some good things. And Easy. I don't when we watch them against the Hawks, I wonder if they'll remind us of the Hawks like Trey's rookie season or Trey, you know, the first half of Trey's second season where some interesting young talent kind of sometimes find, figure out a way to put it together. So fun weekend. Um, looking forward to those games. And uh, wow. I'm sure we'll uh, do a retrospective of sorts at some point next week after we get to watch them. I appreciate you taking the time, sir. Always. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Have a good night. And you. Clint's obviously given you a lot on defense lately. Finishes a lot of oops and dunks. Is, is there anything that you can do with a guy when maybe he's missing some of the touch shots near the rim to kind of get a, get a better percentage? terms of just like feel around the basket oh yeah we drill that all the time you know uh, you know some of that is uh is our players putting those guys in those positions and a lot of times you're throwing the ball to bigs our guards are throwing the ball to our bigs in traffic you know uh you know so uh you know some of that is the execution of the play uh you know the finish you know if you're throwing it to him and I got all of you guys around me trying to finish, that's a tough one. You know, so you don't put you don't put him in that situation. You know, uh, 
you know, some of those, uh, I think he's rushing it. You know, some of the offensive rebounds, he is, you know, getting it and trying to get it up quickly and uh, not focusing on finishing as opposed to just trying to get it up on the rim. You know, so we do drills where, you know, guys are micing. You do those drills. You work on the free throws, you know, because I think when, when, a, when a player uh, is confident at the free throw line, it slows down for him in the paint. When he's not as confident at the free throw line, sometimes you're rushing to get that ball up on the rim, you know, but, uh, you, know, we, you know, those are shots that Clint has made. Uh, we, we, again, we, we didn't finish last night.